After my heart attack, cash from active care meant I had choices. When I had cancer, cash from active care meant I didn't need to stress so much about money. What is active care? Active care is a supplemental health insurance policy that offers protection for covered cancer, heart attack, or stroke and a choice of cash benefit options from $10,000 to $60,000. If you're diagnosed with cancer, a heart attack, or stroke, you could end up paying thousands of dollars or more in out-of-pocket medical bills. Active Care gives you protection at an affordable price. So, get Active Care for cash, choice, and control. Active Care is brought to you by Colonial Penn Life Insurance Company and is underwritten by Washington National Insurance Company. Visit colonialpen.com for more information. This is a limited benefit policy. This policy has limitations and exclusions. For costs and complete details of coverage, visit colonialpen.com. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here all across the state of Georgia. The fold number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You know, I told you guys we were picking up station in Brunswick uh, this week, and then we found an email. They had a technical problem. It'll be Monday from from yesterday. By the way, if you're looking at me on the webcam on Facebook Live, I realize I haven't shaved and and I'm in the same shirt from yesterday. I promise I'm not having a nervous breakdown. My kid decided he forgot his glasses. For, he's he's you know he's had glasses for a year, but he hadn't really had to wear them a lot. Now he's kind of got to wear them constantly, and he's fallen out of habit. And he he had a bad day and forgot to take his glasses to school. So I literally had to rush to school, drop off his glasses, get back, try to jump in the shower. I just grabbed what was there in the bathroom not on the floor i'd only worn the shirt three hours yesterday on the right in any event that's more than y'all wanted to know hey let's move to news i've got news for you uh he he got a bunch of shots i felt bad for the kid he got four shots in his legs yesterday and he's miserable um and and so he went out of the house this morning and had a hot pad on his legs and then forgot his glasses underneath the hot pad so um i, I have done the research I have. One day when I get rich and famous and have a nationally syndicated radio show, I will have interns. And the interns, uh, no uh, no cigar jokes. You get that out of your mind. I uh, know my, my interns will do my research for me. And they will get on, they will do the Googling for me and the Lexus Nexus for me. Until then, I myself do my own research. I'm I'm bad about delegating. I'm sure I could have found somebody to do it for me, but man, me and 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 giving up control, ugh, stuff for people. It is tough. I've got an assistant. We, she's been my assistant since 2015, and she still regularly lectures me on on putting stuff on my calendar. That it, it, it's her job. I I I, I got to work on this still. Five years in now. There is a theme developing among members of the press and with Joe Biden that you got to get rid of Donald Trump to have calm. Listen to some of Joe Biden's speech yesterday. And I got to say, objectively, this will make some of you mad. Objectively, for a speech, Joe Biden gave a speech. If you don't like Joe Biden, you're not going to like the speech. But just objectively, thematically, Joe Biden gave a good speech. But you need to listen to this. Frankly, I believe if I were president today, the country would be safer and we've seen a lot less violence, and here's why. 
I have said we must address the issue of racial injustice. I've personally spoken to George Floyd's family and to Jacob Blake's family. I know their pain, and so do you. I know the justice they seek, and so do you. They've told us none of this violence respects or honors George or Jacob. I believe we can bring these, 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 these folks fighting for racial justice to the table. So is he, first of all, is he acknowledging, is Joe Biden acknowledging that it is Black Lives Matters that's protesting in the streets, that's burning down buildings, that's rioting in Portland and, and uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin? By the way, uh, the Portland police are saying it's rioting, contrary to what Chris Eliza at CNN said. But uh, Biden essentially is, is embracing the extortion that you, you you like your city, you, you want to keep it from being in flames, you better vote for me. The idea from the Democrats, from the media, from Joe Biden, from the talking heads on TV, is that this violence we're seeing from, from the left, by the way, it's it's not, it would be one thing if it was Donald Trump supporters, but it's not. It is, it's left-wing agitators. And so I want to, if you will, I, I want to actually read for you. I, I rarely like to read on this program, uh, but I actually want to, I, I, it was good the first time I wrote it. So I want to read this for you because I did the research on this. In 2009, as the Tea Party formed a fight against the growth of government in Obamacare, media talking heads depicted the Tea Party as racist and violent. In the August recess of 2009, there were six arrests at congressional town halls, each of which the media trumpeted as proof the Tea Party was violent. In fact, all six arrests happened at a single town hall meeting. Five of the six were union activists beating up a conservative black man. But the Tea Party was violent, the media assured us. In 2008, around the time of the Republican National Convention, a still unknown white 20-something male approached the Texas governor's mansion and threw a Molotov cocktail at it. The mansion burned down. The case remains unsolved. Federal and state authorities have long suspected it was a left-leaning anarchist. Rick Perry and Anita Perry were not in the mansion at the time. It was vacant under renovation, and it got burned to the ground. At the same time, left-wing anarchists were fighting police in the streets of St. Paul, Minnesota during the Republican convention. Some of them were plotting to go back to Texas with Molotov cocktails to commit acts of violence, which is why the police suspected it was uh, anarchists at the time. Uh, At the Republican convention in St. Paul, uh, hundreds of violent protesters were arrested by the police trying to disrupt the convention. They were all of the left. They were anti-war Democrats. In 2010, Andrew Joseph Stack crashed a plane into the IRS building in Austin, Texas. Members of the media rushed to say it had to be right-wing extremists. I was at CNN at the time. I remember the suspicion that it might have been one of those Republican, conservative, arch-conservative Tea Party activist protesters. It turns out that Stack was crazy. And he was also a Marxist who had a suicide note in which he attacked corporations, the government's dependence on corporations, and the Catholic Church. In 2010, John Patrick Bettle opened fire at the Pentagon and immediately blue check marks rushed to Twitter and said it's it's one of those those crazy right-wingers. It's a Tea Party activist at Barack Obama's Pentagon. The Christian Science Monitor described Bettle this way, quote, an anti-Bush registered Democrat who believed 9-11 was planned and carried out by the U.S. government. In 2010, James J. Lee took hostages at the Discovery Channel, and yet again, the blue check marks, the media talking heads, the pundits, 
rushed out to proclaim it had to be a right-winger who hated the Discovery Channel, was uh, keeping people up to date on global warming and, and climate change and a- exposing conservative lies about the fossil fuel industry. Turns out that James J. Lee was a left-wing nutter who believed that the Discovery Channel and Al Gore were not doing enough to fight climate change. In 2011, Jared Lochner attempted the assassination of Gabrielle Giffords. I was actually on TV that week on CNN, and I remember the discussions, uh, the initial presumptions that he had to be some sort of right-winger, that he was inspired by Tea Party rhetoric, that Sarah Palin had something to do with it, with her uh, mail piece that targeted Giffords' district, the the warlike rhetoric from the right uh, in the Tea Party movement in politics, as if uh, both sides had used warlike rhetoric in politics forever. Um, it was Clausewitz who said, I think it was Clausewitz who said that uh, war is, is politics, uh, on the battlefield or war is politics by additional means. Uh, it, war and politics have always used the same rhetoric, and yet somehow this was uniquely a, a Tea Party, Sarah Palin problem. It was them to blame. It turns out that Lochner, to the extent he was political, he was on the left, but he really wasn't political. He was just mentally ill. In 2012, during the Republican National Convention, left-wing protesters stockpiled 300 tiles, bricks, pipes, and riot gear to disrupt the RNC. An embedded police officer who had gone undercover uh, and, and rose to be a leader of the protest movement was able to scuttle efforts to sabotage the Republican convention by left-wing activists. And yet time and time again, the media blamed the Tea Party and called them violent extremists. And when it was exposed that the violent extremists were on the left, they immediately got memory hold and the media made it all disappear. Even James Hodgkinson fell out of the headlines the moment it became apparent he was a Bernie bro. James Hodgkinson attempted the mass assassination of Republican members of Congress. If a Tea Partier had tried to commit a mass assassination of Republican members of Congress, do you know how many days it would be in the headlines? Hodgkinson lasted no more than three days in the headlines. In fact, Jared Lochner was longer in the headlines over the attempted assassination of Gabrielle Giffords until the moment it turned out there wasn't a Tea Party angle and they dropped the story. In 2014, Ismaili Brinsley traveled from Baltimore, Maryland to New York City and executed two New York police officers, Winjin Liu and Rafael Ramos. They were execution-style assassinations coming on the heels of public comments Barack Obama and Eric Holder had made about the police and law enforcement's failures in dealing with racial minorities after the Eric Garner situation. Rudy Giuliani went out and blasted Obama and and Holder for their rhetoric, saying it was contributing to the violence against the police. And editorialists from the New York Times to the Boston Globe said that only the perpetrators can be blamed. You can't blame someone's rhetoric for violence. You can only blame the violent persecutors or or the, the, the violent extremists. So yesterday, Joe Biden gives a speech. He claims the violence would continue so long as Donald Trump remained president. He claimed Trump uniquely fostered the violence. Now, Joe Biden, if you will recall, is a man who once told an audience of black voters in South Carolina that Republicans would put them, quote, back in chains, end quote. He worked for a man who on the campaign trail in 2008 told his supporters when they, meaning Republicans, bring knives, we bring guns to the fight. He told Hispanic voters to punish their enemies at the poll and made clear to them that he was referring to Republicans and only later, when called out by Republicans on it, apologized for his remark. He told his voters to get in Republicans' faces, get in their neighbors' faces and argue with them. 
His campaign, if you will recall, also in 2012, pioneered sending postcards to voters to tell them that their neighbors were Republicans who had already voted. He set up a website where you could go see who your neighbor was, how they were registered to vote, and whether or not they had voted. And yet the media ignores all of these things. Somehow it's, it's uniquely Donald Trump is bad, that everything was peaceful before then. When Democrats like Joe Biden denounce the violence, they just denounce the violence. They say violence is bad. Joe Biden, I, I denounce the violence. I denounce the rights. When Republicans do it, they are specifically asked to denounce individuals and groups. Democrats just get to denounce the violence generally. Donald Trump denounced the violence on both sides in Charlottesville, Virginia, Antifa and the, the, the fascist protesters denounced it on both sides. And the media excoriated him for saying both sides uh, were bad. He also said that both sides had good people and he specifically excluded the, the, the racist protesters who were marching with the tiki torches. He meant the people on the sidelines who had come to Charlottesville to witness the spectacle when the violence got out of hand. Jake Tapper actually proved that with the clips and most of CNN still believes he said that the white supremacists had good people, but he didn't actually say that. When Joe Biden comes out and says there's violence on both sides, the media applauds him that he doesn't have to name a particular group. Democrats like to say now that this is Donald Trump's America. And it's true, this is Donald Trump's America right now, but this is only happening in Democrat-controlled cities. And, you know, it, it's, it's not Trump supporters who are doing it. It's left-wing activists. They move on from that point as quickly as they moved on from the attempted assassination of members of Congress by a Bernie bro. Uh, no, no, no. Pay no attention to the fact that it's it's left-wing activists. This is Donald Trump's America. Three weeks ago in Portland, Oregon, the media was telling us that the only reason there was violence and rioting in Portland is in response to federal troops Donald Trump sent there who provoked the matter. We're three re weeks removed. The troops are gone. The mayor of Portland is still blasting the president for the violence. Last night in Portland, Oregon, Antifa was firing high-powered fireworks at the windows of the mayor's apartment in a skyscraper, they smashed the windows of a dentist's office and set it ablaze. And CNN is using a picture of a burning building from Kenosha, Wisconsin, with police in riot gear to run a Chris Saliza editorial saying it's not really riots, it's just protests, and, and the president is amping this up. Now, to be fair, Chris Saliza is an idiot about the only two things that the left and the right agree on in America anymore is cancer is bad and Chris Saliza is an idiot. He is. Riots and violence have been happening since the moment Donald Trump got elected. You will recall the limousines in Washington, D.C. set on fire on the day of the inaugural. You'll require, remember the protesters, the girls sitting on the, on the, the um, ground screaming, no! Chris Cuomo in the media, meanwhile, compares Antifa to the troops storming the beaches at Normandy. You know, it is really weird how Donald Trump provokes all the violence, but it's not his supporters who are burning down America. Uh, the president right now is demanding the president denounce Kyle Rittenhouse, the, the kid who showed up with the AR in Kenosha, Wisconsin, who killed three people, allegedly, and it appears to be in self-defense based on the reporting of the New York Times. But they're not asking Kamala Harris or Joe Biden to walk back funding an effort to bail people out of jail during the riots. And in fact, some of the people that got bailed out using the money Kamala Harris raised went on to commit more violence. On August 15, 2012, inspired by the Southern Poverty Law Center's website, just like James Hodgkinson, by the way, a man named Floyd Lee Corkins went into the Family Research Council in Washington, D.C. It's a conservative Christian group. He bought 15 Chick-fil-A sandwiches and carried those with him into the building and a gun. 
Floyd Lee Corkins intended to murder the employees of the Family Research Council and stuff their mouths with Chick-fil-A sandwiches. In his words to the investigator, quote, they endorsed Chick-fil-A and also Chick-fil-A came out against gay marriage. So I was going to use that as a statement. Thankfully, he never got past the guard. The guard was shot in the shoulder, but was otherwise able to tackle Corkins and wrestle him to the ground until the police got there. 2008, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2014. Those were all before Donald Trump rode that escalator in 2015 to announce he was running for president. It was apparently a blissful age where the president of the United States could go out and tell supporters to take guns to knife fights, get in their neighbor's faces, call Republicans the enemies and set up a White House office to report your neighbor if they were lying about Obamacare. It was just a peaceful time. There was no violence. Just ask the media. I'm already getting emails from people asking, uh, is there anywhere where they can read that for themselves? Uh, my, my, I, I never like to read a model. You can tell when someone's reading on radio. Uh, I, I, I can, I can pick it up. You, you know, one of the hints, if they say a and the, when you're normally talking, you say on the, in, in your, in your conversations, uh, look at the website, look at this. Uh, and it, it is, it, it's, you can tell someone's cadence and rhythms are off when they're reading. So I don't like to read on the radio. You can tell so, some hosts do. Uh, I, I know one guy who actually has somebody who, who script writes for him, uh, his opening monologue. I, but I, I don't like to do that, but I, I put that down. It was good the first time. There was no reason for me to try to reiterate what I said. Um, so it is in writing. If you want to see that, if you need it for your friends to show them uh, that this isn't some uniquely Trump phenomenon, and that's the thing that bugs me about this right now, is the claim that it is a uniquely Trump phenomenon. It's not. So if you want it, text the word data to 33777, and I'll send you back a link to where I wrote it. It's it's free. You don't have to pay anything. Um, but it is a history of left-wing violence uh, during the Obama years so that you yourself or your friends who start questioning you can document it. You'll also, if you text data to 33777, you'll get the Robin Hood link and you'll get the link to the Georgia Department of Public Health so you can see the numbers. By the way, good number trends continue in Georgia. Really good number trends continue in Georgia. In fact, over the weekend, multiple hospitals in the metro Atlanta area reported not a single emergency room visit from someone with COVID-like symptoms for the first time since May. That's really good news. Uh, so text data to 33777. Uh, you will get the link to what I wrote about the history of left-wing violence during the Obama eras. And, and there are lots of links in there. You can follow the links that go down the rabbit hole. I mean, you can see the, the clip of Barack Obama telling people to get in their neighbors' faces and argue. Uh, you can see the, the uh, clip of Joe Biden telling black people that Republicans will put them back in chains. Uh, you can follow through the rabbit hole and, and see uh, Barack Obama telling his supporters to take guns to knife fights. I, I got all the links there. You can find the links to the 2010 guy who flew the plane into the IRS uh, where he himself says uh, that, that he, he's a self-described Marxist. You can find the links to the guy, you can do the Christian Science Monitor article that describes accurately the guy who shot up the Pentagon as an anti-Bush Democrat. You, and you don't hear about this stuff. You don't hear about James Hodgkinson anymore. It just falls out of the headlines. They want you to believe this is a uniquely Donald Trump phenomenon. So I've got the documentation. Text data to 33777. You can see it for yourself. It just, it burns me up 
to have the media have that level of a double standard and just flat out lie about uh, violence during the Obama years, particularly when Barack Obama himself provoked it. Let's not forget, he set up a, a war room in the White House over Obamacare where you can turn in your neighbor for supposedly lying about Obamacare. You don't have to believe me. I've embedded the video from Linda Douglas, who ran the office, encouraging you to turn in your neighbor. Good grief. Things, speaking of things that burn me up, let me talk about Chris Burns. Dynamic Money, they're sponsored to the program. Uh, this is a relevant time for me to tell you. DynamicMoney.com is their website. If you need financial planning help, if you need help with your 401k, if you're a business and you need someone to come in and talk to your employees about retirement right now with the market as crazy as it is, Dynamic Money, they're there. They're fee-only. And that is important. Why? It means they're not going to sell you a product. They're not going to try to steer you towards an annuity or life insurance or anything else. They're not going to refinance your house. They'll tell you who to go to to refinance your house. They, they're like uh, general care physicians, uh, primary care physicians for your finances. They look at everything from how much you're paying for your car insurance to what your mortgage rates are, uh, to what you're saving, to what you're not saving, to your 401k. They help you make readjustments. They'll do it for you if you give them the permission. Otherwise, they'll tell you what to do. They have helped my wife and me. We were customers long before I started. This. I could not have started this radio show, but for them, dynamicmoney.com. Go check them out today if you need financial help. Dynamicmoney.com is the website. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Well, it looks like the phone lines are temporarily turned off. They'll, They'll be open here shortly. And then you'll be able to call in. Um, I want to I want to I, I do a deep dive on uh, the polling later. Uh, and uh, it, it, stick around with me. We're, we're not going to get to it right now. I, I want to talk about something more important um, before we get into a deep dive in the polling and whether or not there is a shift. Is there a balance? What are the trend lines? Uh, what do we say? But right now, we're talking about something bigger. This doesn't get a lot of attention. You know, there's actually a, a lot of data out there in the media, and I, I've read the studies, and it's actually very fascinating. And I, I, I got a, into an argumentative discussion yesterday with a listener of, of my other program who said I was contradicting myself on COVID versus these other things. And, and I want to be real clear here so you don't fall into the trap she fell into. Um, there is a, it, it, People in, in radio and television do a lot of research into what to cover and not to cover. And uh, COVID is a situation where all of the research has said, uh, the more you cover it, the better off you are in ratings. And the reason is because everyone has been concerned about it. Now that's starting to fade some. In fact, there is some suggestion in the research now that that uh, people are tired of the topic. Uh, but over the last number of months, there's been a ton of research that people actually really care about the topic. They're concerned for themselves and their family. They're worried about getting it. And they want to know what's going on, what the numbers are, what they need to be uh, looking out for. And so the media has amplified those stories to a degree, not because they think it'll hurt the president, but because the rating suggested this is a topic people would really be interested in. And to the extent that they could go after the president, so much the better. There's also a ton of research out there on the opioid crisis. You will hear about the opioid crisis in newspapers. You will hear about the opioid crisis on national television programs Rarely will you hear in-depth reporting on the opioid opioid crisis in a local newspaper or on a local television or radio station. And the reason is pretty simple. Most of you know someone 
who struggled with addiction with painkillers or lost a loved one to painkillers or the opioid addiction issue. And nobody wants to hear about it. Nobody wants to be reminded of it. It, it, with the difference between COVID and opioid is that uh, with COVID, you want the information to prevent yourself and your family from getting it. You want to keep your family safe. With the opioid crisis, you know someone who's been affected by it and you don't want to be reminded of it. In the same way, there's a ton of research that shows people really get weirded out, freaked out, by uh, depressed by stories about uh, child trafficking. And so you don't get a ton of news coverage on that topic because it kills ratings. Uh, and and with apologies to the local, local radio stations, that's what I'm about to talk about. And I know that it, it is a topic, there is actually a lot of research in the media that this topic so depresses people, they don't want to hear about it in, in the same way with the opioid situation. But I want to talk about it in a minute for a minute because there's good news. In Georgia, Operation Not Forgotten, I mentioned this to you already, uh, from Macon to the Atlanta suburbs, a 20-county range from uh, Cherokee County down to Bibb County, following I-75 and 85, uh, Georgia authorities and federal marshals were able to rescue 39 kids. The majority of those kids were considered endangered. Endangered means they had been taken by a relative or a, someone the family knew. They were not brought home under questionable circumstances, and family members were concerned that they could be being trafficked, and in many cases they actually were. Uh, the, uh, the, a minority of them, and I want to say it, it was 10 of them, 19 endangered and 10 missing. Missing kids are kids who had disappeared, kidnapped or run away from home. Families couldn't find them. And they were being trafficked sexually. They've arrested, federal authorities have arrested dozens of people related to this in Georgia. Uh, family members who were trafficking the kids or had kidnapped the kids or were grooming the kids uh, others who kids had been passed off to, they arrested them. In in Atlanta, uh, two weeks ago, a federal lawsuit was filed on behalf of victims of human trafficking against a hotel there. This comes on the heels of other lawsuits being filed in the Atlanta area against hotels where the allegations made by the victims are that the hotel employees themselves covered for the traffickers. They notified the traffickers when police were in the area. When kids would escape and come looking for help from the front desk, the front desk would call the traffickers uh, to get the kids back. Um, these, this has been documented. There are lawsuits filed. There are federal investigations into this. Well, Operation Not Forgotten was not just a Georgia operation. Uh, in uh, Ohio, 25 additional missing and sex trafficked kids were found. The missing kids ranged from age 13 to 18, and they were found across the state of Ohio and down to Miami, Florida. Sometimes the situations uh, that they go to, believe it or not, may be better than the situations they left from. We've had some situations where the mother or the father or both may have been prostituting their own children. In some cases, the kids actually went into, get this, some of the kids essentially went into human trafficking to get away from even worse situations. There were 26 missing kids 
from Ohio, 13 in, in Georgia and Florida found. Uh, there, were, there were 39 overall. Uh, then there was a third effort that arrested 27 Ohio men in Cuyahoga County for engaging in sexually explicit conversations with underage agents posing as police. This is a pretty significant deal by the federal authorities and by local officials in Georgia and Florida and Ohio, uh, and, and awful that this happened. Let me read you this from The Blaze as well. Uh, U.S. Marshals located 25 missing and endangered children from Ohio in the last 20 days. U.S. Marshals work with local and state authorities in Ohio to track down the missing kids. The missing children who were between the ages of 13 and 18 were found in Cleveland, East Cleveland, Euclid, Willoughby, and as far away as Miami, Florida. These kids that have been abused and neglected, some involved in human trafficking, Sometimes they, the situation they go to, believe it or not, is better than the one they left behind. We're trying to do our part. A number of these children had gone to hospital after we recovered them to get checked out. So, again, it's something we take very seriously. Earlier this week, U.S. Marshals rescued 26 kids and located 13 others. Those were ages 3 to 17 found in Georgia and Florida. Of the 39 children, 15 were victims of human trafficking. The men arrested were between the ages of 21 and 61. Y'all, I take this issue really seriously. I have interviewed victims of human trafficking, and I have interviewed uh, individuals involved with rescuing kids from human trafficking. And there are some common themes, and I want to reiterate them to you, and I've talked about this before. One of them is broken homes. In fact, one of the U.S. Marshals said uh, that those who prey on these kids look for kids in broken, battered homes. If a parent is abusive or otherwise, the, the family is a wreck. The parents are fighting constantly. The family is melting down. Oftentimes, you will find the kids find a safe haven with a friendly voice they connect with over the Internet or in their community, and it turns out they're being groomed. Increasingly, what happens is kids, particularly in the age of quarantine, are befriending people online who they think are other kids and actually aren't other kids. They're not other kids at all. They're they're adults or grooming them. And sometimes adults use kids uh, to to groom other kids. I, I've mentioned on this program before a situation I am, I am well aware of, of a boy, teenage boy, who began a sexual relationship with a girl slightly older than him. She introduced him to drugs. Uh, they would get high and have sex. And after a period of time, uh, she invited others into their relationship, including uh, men. And the boy was so ashamed, he's from a Christian house, he didn't think he could go home having had uh, homosexual and heterosexual encounters and done lots of drugs. He just assumed that that this was his life now. He was stuck, no way out. And luckily, his parents loved him, cared for him. He was from a decent home. He fell in with this over the internet, got curious about sex, and fell into it, and the family was able to rescue him, and, and he had a lot of therapy. Uh, there are other situations. I interviewed a girl who was a victim of human trafficking whose father sold her 
she was in school. She was on the softball team and her father was selling her for sex. See why people don't like to listen to these on, on radio and TV? It's, it's depressing to know this happens. Um, there are kids, a, a, a buddy of mine texted me right now, uh, daddy issues, girls with daddy issues. that they, they have bad relationships with their fathers, and they go out and find a father figure. Y'all, if dads matter, just to, as a random aside here, I'm going to preach for a minute. In Genesis 6, Noah finds favor in God's eyes. And Noah is instructed to build the ark. He builds the ark. And Noah's family is allowed in the ark with Noah. And God seals the door. And he seals them into the ark, and the ark passes over the troubled waters. Noah's children and wife did not find favor in God's eyes. Noah did. But because Noah found favor in God's eyes, his children were able to pass through the turmoil with him. For those of you in in reform circles, uh, when a family loses a child and you want to know if the child went to heaven, was the dad a believer? Because if if the answer is yes, then absolutely 100% I can guarantee you uh, that child's in heaven. Dads matter. The faith of a father matters. Dads need to have good relationships with their kids. And the the expendability of fathers in this modern age, you you watch the ad campaigns, it's always the dad who's the dolt in the ad campaigns. The dad is always the butt of jokes uh, in culture, but dads actually phenomenally matter. There have been multiple studies out there that have shown that a two-parent heterosexual nuclear household is the best place to raise a child. And do you know where the second best place to raise a child is? This is going to make some of you mad, but there's actually a lot of data out there. Single dads. Single dads, not in divorce, but in in, uh, deceased spouses, single dad households tend to be stable households. Dads matter. That's not to say moms don't matter, and moms don't hear me say that. Uh, But let's just appreciate the fact that dads actually matter tremendously. And uh, kids need relationships with fathers. They need relationships with mothers. In this day and age, they really need relationships with fathers. And part of the reason we're seeing some level of societal decay is because there aren't a lot of fathers in households. Uh, I I know plenty of girls who went off and and got pregnant before they were married. They took attraction to boys and later in life grew up and acknowledged that, in fact, they had such turmoil in their relationship with their dad. They went out looking for father figures, sometimes with boyfriends and the like. Dads matter. And if you're a father who has a tumultuous relationship with your kids, you need to understand you bear some responsibility for your, your kids' antics in life. Eventually, they have to take responsibility for themselves, but dads matter. And one of the common traits of human traffickers is they look for kids in families without a father or with an abusive father where kids are trying to escape and find father figures. And they are groomed and then roped into human trafficking and in some cases feel they can't escape and in many cases flat out can't escape. Dads matter. Stability within the family matters. Two-parent households matter. These shouldn't be controversial things. Unfortunately, they are in the culture we live in. 
But with the collapse of families, it, it, it's it's not a secret with the collapse of the American family, the rise of domestic human trafficking is going up with the, the crackdown on the border and the education of human trafficking as an issue. Uh, the rise of domestic trafficking is going up. All of these things contribute to the rise of domestic human trafficking in this country. It is a really big issue. But there is good news now. In Georgia, 39 kids rescued. In Ohio, 25 kids rescued. These operations are continuing around the country, but that's a small snapshot of the number of kids who have gone missing. It is a small snapshot. Uh, the number of kids who have had their lives disrupted it is a small snapshot of what's going on out there. You need to be mindful of it. You should educate yourself about it. If, if you're with a church group or some such, uh, there are people who you can rely on. There are great groups. Uh, Wellspring is one of them. Guardians International is another one. Uh, there are lots of groups out there that can teach you the signs of human trafficking. Uh, it is no small thing that this happens. And you know where it happens a lot? It happens in the Southeast. You know why it happens in the Southeast? A lot of this is organized by criminal activity in, in the Northwest, and they use the Southeast as a hub, particularly because of the rise of military installations. A lot of young guys in military installations, you, you go to the, the 24-hour massage parlors, well, there's a reason they all exist within about 30 minutes of military installations in the Southeast. There's, a, there's an entire pattern to this. The traffickers know what they're doing. You got to educate yourself. More importantly... You got to work on your family because you want no incentive for your kids to feel like they need to run a home, run away from home. But more importantly, given the patterns of human trafficking, you need a family where your kid understands they can always come home because the number one way that kids are groomed into this is to convince them once the bad things have happened to them that their family's not going to love them anymore. And so they just accept their fate as opposed to understanding they can always go home to their family because their family's loving and forgiving. You need to remember that. Man, I just saw an angry commenter on Twitter. What about Tim McVeigh? You left him out of the list. If you're just tuning in at the start of the show, I, I, I chronicled all the violent acts of left-wing extremists during the Obama era because, you know, the media wants you to believe that everything was perfectly fine in this country until uh, Donald Trump came along. But actually, there were consistent left-wing agitators at the end of the Bush administration in the run-up to Obama and then then amplified by Obama telling people to go take guns to knife fights. By the way, you can see everything I wrote. If you text the word DATA to 33777, text the word is DATA, D-A-T-A, text that to the number 33777. I'll send you back a link so you can see it all yourself. But one of these people, what about that Christian who blew up the, the Oklahoma uh, courthouse, the Murrah Federal Building? It really is amazing to me how the left has clung to the mythology that Timothy McVeigh was a Christian. In fact, in every interview Timothy McVeigh gave, he acknowledged he grew up in a Catholic household and rejected Christianity as mythology. Virtually every interview given where he was asked that question, uh, McVeigh flat out acknowledged uh, admitted and said that he was an atheist. He wasn't a believer at all. And yet to this day, people on the left want you to believe that Timothy McVeigh was a Christian. And it says more about those people than it does Tim McVeigh, actually. The smug beliefs that make people sleep well at night, that they're morally superior to other people. Uh, that's why people do things like that. That's that's why they want you to believe that um, that, that Tim McVeigh was a Christian. And by the way, that's not to dismiss that there were acts of violence prior to even Barack Obama. There have been in this country.
The point of the entire piece this morning and the point of my opening monologue, though, was to show that uh, you've got an entire media operation right now that wants you to believe that Donald Trump is somehow uniquely bad and that somehow or another, uh, all of the violence we're seeing now is unique to this age and that nothing like it ever happened before. And that's simply not true. 2008, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2014, 2016, there are ample evidence and, and examples of violence from the left that the media, by the way, characterized as violence from the right until it was exposed and they immediately dropped the story. The greatest example of all of this is James Hodgkinson, who attempted the mass assassination of members of Congress. And the moment it turned out he was a birdie bro, the story disappeared. By the way, I'm, I'm not actually making that up. I've done the research. Hodgkinson stayed in the news for three days. And then the FBI reported that he had favorited on his Facebook page, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and that he was a Bernie Sanders supporter. And that it was all the left-wing rhetoric about Republicans. He was really concerned Paul Ryan really was going to shove grandma off the cliff that decided, that caused him to have to act. The attempted mass assassination of Republican members of Congress by someone fueled by left-wing rhetoric. Notice the media fixates on Donald Trump's rhetoric. They fixate on what Donald Trump said. What about the Democrats? Why will the media not hold the Democrats accountable for what they've said? Because to my knowledge, Donald Trump has not inspired anyone to commit mass assassination on Democratic members of Congress. But Bernie and and Elizabeth Warren and, and Nancy Pelosi and the Southern Poverty Law Center, they inspired the mass assassination attempt of members of Congress. The Southern Poverty Law Center was also where Floyd Lee Corkins drew his inspiration to go try to shoot up the Family Research Council as an anti-gay organization. Let's not revise history. You can see it all for yourself. Text the word data to 33777. Uh, let, let's deal in facts and reality here, not the mythology of the left trying to make themselves feel smugly superior. That's just the reality here. When we come back, we got to move into some good news in Georgia. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I want to begin this hour with good news here in Georgia. And this goes, if you weren't here in the last hour, first of all, let me recap for those who, who may just be tuning in. The media right now is peddling the story that somehow there is a unique phenomenon of violence in this country with Donald Trump, that somehow Donald Trump is provoking it. I went back to the Obama era, a time when the president of the United States was saying uh, such calming things as take guns to knife fights, the Republicans are your enemies, punish them at the polls, get in your neighbor's faces and argue turn in your neighbors to the White House if they're lying about Obamacare, uh, Republicans will put you back in change. During that peaceful era where there was no violent rhetoric from the White House, I I went back and chronicled uh, the number of left-wing agitators. One Marxist flew a plane into the IRS building in Austin, Texas. A, A anarchist burned down the Texas governor's mansion with Molotov cocktails. Another self-described anti-war, anti-Bush Democrat uh, showed up at the Pentagon and started shooting the place up. 
you had in, into the um, Trump years, James Hodgkinson attempting mass assassination of Republican members of Congress. And the moment it came out, he was a birdie bro. The media changed the subject. You had Floyd Lee Corkins during the Obama era who showed up with 15 Chick-fil-A sandwiches at the Family Research Council and wanted to kill all of them and stuff their faces with the chicken sandwiches. All of that during the peaceful era of the Obama administration. And I chronicled all that with copious documentation so you could see for yourself the violent rhetoric Barack Obama used and the way the media gave him a pass and how they would rapidly change the subject any time it came out that these were left-wing people. In fact, in all these cases, the immediate blame was for the Tea Party. And when it came out they were leftists, the media moved on. You can see that for yourself. You can read it by texting the word data to 33777. And you should save that link for your friends who have bought into this nonsense that somehow uh, Donald Trump is inspiring violence when Barack Obama was a wonderful guy because I got links to all of uh, Barack Obama's statements and Joe Biden telling black people Republicans would put him back in chains. Text the word data to 33777 to see it. Now, The other thing that I talked about in the last hour, uh, and this gets me to where I want to go with the virus, is uh, increasingly, you know, people, the news media doesn't tell the warm and fuzzy stories. Uh, They they don't tell the good news. Uh, They will tell news that is good news on occasion, that the Friday evening warm story to make your heart warm as you head into the weekend. But by and large, you know the statement, if it bleeds, it leads. Scott Truby has a story at the um, at the Atlanta Journal Constitution, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, a coalition related to the Chamber of Commerce, is urging Georgians to wear masks and limit groups as Labor Day nears. Travel and gatherings over Memorial Day weekend, according to a a new report from this group, uh, shows that um, the Memorial Day weekend has a lot to do with the spread of the virus in Georgia. Georgia's surge, this is from the AJC, Georgia's surge in new cases accelerated the second week of June and was initially focused outside Metro Atlanta in border counties and communities with tourism-based economies. According to the report by Amber Schmidke, a former Mercy University professor and one-time Centers for Disease Control and Prevention expert in microbiology and immunology, the virus then spread in Metro Atlanta counties, reversing gains those counties had reported in the few weeks between Georgia's reopening, April 24th, and Memorial Day. Overall, Georgia reported a more than 60, 600% increase in the daily rolling average Average of cases from Memorial Day to July 11th, the peak of the summer surge based on reports onset of symptoms, according to Schmidtke's analysis of uh, Georgia Department of Health data. Now, there are a couple of things here you, you need to understand. They're saying it's not really the protests. I would take issue with that. But what they do note is that the surges in cases started after Memorial Day in counties that are tourism-based. So the surges in cases started in, in northeast Georgia, in the Lake Rabin, uh, Lake Burton area, uh, in the Hall County area around, um, uh, around Lake Lanier, in the Savannah region, in the McIntosh County area in, in southeast Georgia. Uh, in those areas, that's where the, the, the surge started, Chatham County and south along the coast, the northeast in Northwest Georgia mountain areas, that's where the surges started. And then it moved to the Metro Atlanta area. And that's why they're discounting the protest. I I would quibble with that, but you need to understand that that's what they're saying. 
uh, and, and they're looking at where the virus began and where it spread to. And it began in those areas where people were, have vacation homes or went on vacation along the coast. And then the virus moved into the metro area when those people came back after Memorial Day. And that's how they're attributing it to that spread. There are a couple of things that you need to note here. If that was the case, if it was along the coasts and it was along the lake region and the mountains in northeast and northwest Georgia, and then it spread to Atlanta, you know who's not to blame? Brian Kemp. It's not the barber shops or the bowling alleys or the tattoo parlors or the hair salons or any of the other businesses the governor allowed to reopen at the end of May where these or in April where these things started. It started with people going on vacation and not socially distancing. It was the protesters too. Let's just be real honest about this. Uh, there was not a lot of data at first about the protesters. And I got a lot of heat from people saying, telling them there was no data because they intuitively knew it must be so. And I wanted to wait for the data. Well, the data has come out and the data does show that the protesters spread it. And uh, the AJC and, or this report, I guess, is, is, is making light of that in Atlanta because based on their trends, there wasn't a massive spike in Atlanta until people who got it on Memorial Day came back. And that's fair, but we should also be mindful of the fact that if you're looking at the two-week spread, uh, it takes about two weeks. The protest started Memorial Day as well. And there were people from those areas of the state who came to Atlanta to protest and then went home. And we should be mindful of that. But we also need to be mindful of something else. As much energy has been spent trying to blame Governor Kemp for the spread of COVID-19 in Georgia after reopening the state, the fact of the matter is the state was doing really well for more than a month after the governor reopened the state. And then with the protests and Memorial Day weekend all collided at the same time, then you see the spike several weeks later. But we're now headed in the right direction, even with schools opening. Even with the great freakout, you know how many cases there were confirmed yesterday, August 31st? 1,523 cases yesterday. That's it. 2,422 on August 29th. 2,548 on August 27th. 2,976 on August 21st. And that's down from 4,812 on July 24th. That was the high date. If you want to follow along in the in the uh, in the moving average, you got to go all the way back to June to get comparable data now. We're headed in the right direction. We should be happy. We are trending appropriately, and that's the data report. The date of onset actually, it's even better. The data of onset is, is better because remember what happens with the reporting. And I realize this is broken record. Um, uh, um, there is, um, when they when you go in for a test, the test may come back two weeks later. And what they do is they reprioritize your test to the date of onset. And the date of onset is presumed to be the day you decided you needed a test. So you may get a, a, a date of test. You know what? Let, let me use Bibb County because Bibb County is a hot spot. Um, Bibb County, where I am in Georgia, is a hot spot. Uh, Bibb County had a huge spike in cases. Uh, on August 24th, there were 731 case confirmed cases of COVID-19 
in Bibb County, Georgia, on August 24th. And it, 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 what's so amazing about this, in fact, let me see if I, I can, um, well, no, I can't right now. Um, th- th- this report is, is really, really, really fairly flat. No more, th- I mean, the highest day ever in Bibb County was 175 cases. The typical uh, you get, uh, is under 100 cases. And then all of a sudden there's this massive spike, 731 cases on August 24th. And that's based on date of report. When you flip it from date of report to date of onset, what you see in Bibb County is that the big spike actually happened in July, and it's trended down ever since. Now, why is that? In fact, um, based on the the 14-day moving average, uh, 34 cases on August 14th, that, that's the, the latest in the 14-day moving average, or in the 7-day moving average, uh, they use a 14-day window. So why that big spike? Well, because those cases of positivity relate back to people who got it earlier. A lot of them college kids coming back in. Baldwin County, by the way, uh, Milledgeville, Georgia College and State University, that's the other big hot spot in the state right now. And it very much like George, like Bibb County, there's a huge spike um, uh, towards the end of August. Uh, there, there's fairly flat line and then massive spikes. Now, Why? It has everything to do with college kids coming back and the college kids getting their tests and then reprioritizing when the date of symptoms began and moving those back. So the the spike looks current, and if you read your local headlines, it looks like there's a massive outbreak happening right now because the college kids are getting tested. But actually, when you prioritize it to when did the symptoms actually begin or when did they actually get their test, it moves it back into late July, early August. And the numbers are downward trend. Even in, in, in Baldwin County, for example, uh, in the 17-day moving average, uh, or the 7-day the moving average, the spike was on August 29th, 51 cases. And it's already August 31st, rapid drop to 38 cases with date of onset. Let's do da- or date of report. Let's do date of onset. Date of onset, we're seeing a massive spike still in um, Baldwin County. We're at the highest in the 7-day moving average, but it's only 28. And I can already extrapolate out that within about four days, it's going to crash again. Let's do Bibb County. Now, I, I realize this is somewhat esoteric because you can't see the graph, but if you text data to 33777, you can see the data for each of these counties. So with Bibb County, based on the date of reporting, you've got in the seven-day moving average, you've got uh, 153 cases on August 24th. And you know what it is today? 34 So from 153 cases on August 24th to 34 cases on August 31st in the the average. What about the seven-day moving average for actual cases with Bibb County? Uh, The spike actually was on July 10th, 123 cases. And where are we today? 47 in the moving average, 37 actual cases. All of this has to do with college kids coming back and seeing those spikes. But overall, what is the state? And this is important. Because this doesn't get the attention. You know, it doesn't bleed, so it doesn't lead. The state of Georgia is trending in the right direction again. We have trended downward every day in the seven-day moving average since July 12th. We're now with the seven-day moving average. It ends on August 18th, and every day has been less than the day before. Over the weekend in the metro Atlanta area, multiple hospitals saw zero patients with COVID-19 symptoms. ICU capacity is freeing up again. ICU and hospital bed space is freeing up in most of the state. There are some areas of the state 
that are still taxed with hospital space, but most of them aren't. We're headed in the right direction. And unfortunately, because it's not bad news, it doesn't get covered. Because it's not disaster, it doesn't get covered. The White House, you know, all the nightmare scenarios. Oh, Georgia's leading the nation. What's going on in Georgia? Georgia's bad. It, it, it turns out, actually, that uh, Georgia is now out of the top five for the White House. What about the spread in Georgia? What's the, the, the rate of transmission has remained below one since July 2nd. The rate of transmission has remained below one in Georgia since July 2nd. That's important because the rate of transmission shows you how it will spread. If it is one or higher, it means it's spreading in the community. If it is less than one, it means it's declining in the community. Georgia has not had a day above a one or above since July 2nd. This is all good news. The state continues to head in the right direction. The state has headed in the right direction since July. And you don't hear about the virus in the media unless it's bad news, unless they can blame the governor for something. But we're headed in the right direction. The governor opened the state at the end of, end of April. And you know where the virus was not spreading? In the businesses he reopened. It was spreading when people got out on their boats and started drinking together and hanging out on the beach together and weren't socially distancing and weren't wearing masks and weren't keeping up with washing their hands and stuff. And that's where it spread. People went on vacation and they brought it back. You can't blame people's behavior on the governor unless you want him to go around the state and personally lock everyone in their houses at night and not let them out. People have to take some accountability, but they don't want to. So the media blames the governor, lest it blames the people who actually subscribe to the paper and they get mad and cancel their subscriptions. But the reality is Georgia is headed in the right direction, and we should be willing to acknowledge the state is headed in the right direction, and we should be willing to acknowledge that the governor reopening the state is not what caused the spread of the virus. You know, I, I just I, I do have to say in, in this AJC report, hang on a second, I got a I, I got a <laughs> Schmidtke examined potential impact of protests that swept parts of the state in the wake of the death of George Floyd and found that, quote, it doesn't appear that the protests were a large driver of disease transmission. Many of the protests occurred in Fulton and DeKalb County, though cases of the virus grew in those counties in June and July. They were not hot spots in the rate of case growth compared to population, as many rural Georgia counties were. Really? Y'all, I'm, I'm sorry if you're going to completely dismiss the protests, particularly when you had protesters driving to urban areas from rural areas and then back, people wanting to participate in the protest. I, I, I have a hard time taking you seriously here. Uh, and, you know, I, I waited. I waited and waited and waited, much to your chagrin, before I was willing to say the protest spread it, but there is ample data. And, you know, that gets to what's happened in Washington, D.C. So last week, you had the president on a Thursday have that event at the White House, and the media lost it. How dare he do that? There were no masks. This was crazy. How could the president do this? It, it, Listen, this is, this is, listen to this. This is from uh, the Associated Press. We should underscore this. That was a live audience. There were several hundred people there. Some of them were in masks, not many. Uh, they were not particularly socially distanced. And reporters who were there last night in Baltimore talked to people in the crowd, and many of them said they were not tested for the coronavirus before they arrived. And you saw a video earlier, the vice president and the president sort of worked the rope line a little bit after the speech. 
Vice President Pence was even seen giving out handshakes and fist bumps, potentially being exposed to someone who was not tested for the virus. That was the vice president's speech. And then you had very much the same situation uh, at the White House with the president and, and folks there, a massive crowd on the lawn, and every all the members of the media melted. How can they do this? How dare they do this? They're going to spread the virus. Then you had a, a massive, massive Black Lives Matters rally in Washington, D.C. A lot of people in masks, a lot of people not in masks, all piled together on the National Mall. And they get a complete pass from the media. You know what my prevailing theory is on the spread of the virus, by the way? I'll tell you what it's not. Well, to a degree, there actually is data to sustain. Uh, Memorial Day had something to do with it. But it was a whole lot of people who saw how the media treated those small business owners in, in April with their protests denouncing them for potentially spreading the virus. And then you have the riots after George Floyd. And the media cheers them on. The first responders cheer them on. Everybody cheers them on. They're heroes for standing up to the state. Everybody's got to be quiet. They got to have a black square on Instagram. You got to listen. And there were a whole lot of people saying, wait a second, you're going to praise these people after attacking us for wanting to reopen? Screw you. I'm going to go about my life. And they all started leaving their house and the virus started spreading. But people took matters into their own hands because they couldn't believe the media anymore. That's what's going on here. You know, while we're having all of this turmoil in the country and whatnot, a lot of people buying guns. One place you can go to get a great gun, or at least upgrade your gun, is True Precision. Uh, They upgraded my concealed carry. I actually worked with them every step of the way to build my specific concealed carry gun. I've got a Glock 43X. It's gorgeous. I've got a camo slide. I've got a new barrel. I've got upgraded sights. So we've got to upgrade the trigger. They didn't have their new triggers in at the time. Uh, We're going to upgrade that soon. And you can do this at True Precision as well. Uh, the, the Glock, SIG, MMP, they got a number of gun brands that they work with. Go to true-precision.com, true-precision.com. You can order their parts online, the slides, the barrels, the triggers, whatever. Order it online. If you use Eric, E-R-I-C-K, at checkout, you're going to get 10% off. Y'all, unbelievable build quality from these guys. Uh, Gorgeous, gorgeous gun upgrades from True Precision. I love mine, true-precision.com. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You, too, can call in, 877-973-7425. 7425. Um, have you all heard this clip from Joe Biden? COVID has taken this year, just since the outbreak, has taken more than 100 years. Look, here's the lives. It's just, it's, I mean, you think about it. More lives this year than any other year for the past 100 years. That was not edited, people. That was actually Joe Biden. COVID has taken this year, just since the outbreak, has taken more than 100 years. Look, here's the lives. It's just, it's, I mean, you think about it. More lives this year than any other year for the past 100 years. Um, okay. Okay, Joe. 
And notice he didn't take questions. Can you imagine if Donald Trump had done that, what the reaction would be? The media is melting down today over a report that the president apparently went to um, Walter Reed Medical Center last year and that the vice president was put on notice. He may have to take over power briefly. The president was put under anesthesia and there hadn't been a lot of details about it. And and the media is freaking out about it. Here comes Joe Biden saying stuff like this, which, by the way, is a pattern with Joe Biden. And the media gives him a pass. Or they, for example, um, they give him a pass on this. This is Joe Biden yesterday in his speech. That will restore a sense of security for working families. We won't just build things back the way they were before. We're going to build them back better with good paying jobs, building our nation's roads, bridges, solar arrays, windmills, with investments in our health care and child care workers. So they get the pay and dignity they deserve while easing the financial burdens on millions of families. With a clean energy strategy that is a place for the energy workers right here in Western Pennsylvania. I am not banning fracking. Let me say that again. I am not banning fracking. No matter how many times Donald Trump lies about me. This future the future. That's what this is all about. He says he's not going to ban fracking. The media is giving him a pass on this. Here's Joe Biden on the debate stage just a few months ago. But for example, the whole idea of whether or not we're going to stop fracking, I would not stop fracking. I'd gradually move away from fracking. I would just not do more fracking on federal lands. So He's not going to ban fracking. He's just going to stop approving fracking over time as we move on to other things. So in other words, he's going to get rid of fracking. He's going to get rid of it. He's playing word games, and the media wants to give him a pass on it in a way they never give Donald Trump a pass on it. In the same way, for example, listen to this from President Trump. Do you want your supporters to confront the no, left-wing protesters, no. or do you want to leave it to law enforcement? No, I don't want them. I want to leave it to law enforcement. But... My supporters are wonderful, hardworking, tremendous people. And they turn on their television set and they look at a Portland or they look at a Kenosha before I got involved and stopped it. Or they look at Chicago where 78 people were shot last week and then numerous people died. Uh, Or they look at New York where violence is up by like, what, 150 percent. It's up by a number that nobody and people are leaving. They're looking at all of this. And they can't believe it. They can't believe it, whether it's my supporter or not. But you don't want them showing up. No, I don't. Well, it's a peaceful protest. I mean, they were protesting. They weren't. You know, it's amazing. They want to protest and they get criticized. The other people run through the streets, burn down storefronts, hurt people, beat people and kill people, kick people in the face. That would have happened to Rand Paul, by the way, and his wife, except that you had two and then ultimately four very good policemen who took a big beating. They took a big beating, and they really saved Rand Paul. In fact, we're going to bring him into the White House and give him some kind of an accommodation because they really, they really, what they did was very brave, actually. I mean, can you imagine? I'm saying policemen were brave because they're escorting, but they're escorting a U.S. senator and his wife, and as Rand said, he would have been killed if they weren't there. Couple of things here. Uh, good for him for recognizing those police officers, but also notice he said he doesn't want his supporters to play police. He said that to Laura Ingram on Fox News. How much of the media 
has focused on that. They, they want him to denounce Kyle Rittenhouse. They want him to denounce Kyle Rittenhouse while giving a complete pass to Kamala Harris for raising funds, bailing the bad guys out of jail. And then there's this from Joe Biden. I want to make it absolutely clear, something very clear about all of this. Rioting is not protesting. Looting is not protesting. Setting fires is not protesting. None of this is protesting. It's lawlessness, plain and simple. And those who do it should be prosecuted. Violence will not bring change. It will only bring destruction. It's wrong in every way. It divides instead of unites. Destroys businesses, only hurts the working families that serve the community. It makes things worse across the board, not better. No, it's not what uh, Dr. King or John Lewis taught, and it must end. Fires are burning, and we have a president who fans the flames rather than fighting the flames. The media loved that line. The president fans the flames instead of fighting the flames. Is that like Barack Obama telling his supporters to take guns to knife fights? Is that like Barack Obama uh, telling Hispanic voters Republicans are the enemy, punish them at the, at the polls, which he had to ultimately apologize for? Is that like Barack Obama telling his supporters to get in their neighbor's faces and argue with them? Is that like Barack Obama telling people to turn in their neighbor if they lied about Obamacare? I mean, all those things happened and the media gave them pass. I, I could do an entire show on the double standard of the media uh, with this. And, and I don't want to because I, I personally, at this point, find it boring because I, I, I could talk about it every day. The fact of the matter is, though, what's going on here is is you're not hearing the president say he doesn't want his supporters to play police officer, which he said. The media said, when, when is he going to denounce us? When is he going to tell us? Well, well, he already has done it. But Joe Biden, you never actually hear Joe Biden denounce these specific protesters who are burning places down like Antifa. Just general blanket, I denounce the violence. And Oh, see, see, he's calling him out. But he's not. He's not. I, I, I just, I, I, I resent the double standard by the media at this point. I resent the double standard because it, pro- it it provides a false picture of what's happening in the country. And the media is notorious about doing this. The media is notorious about taking the side of the left. Now, you all know this. I'm not speaking on a turn here. But the implication this time is the media is doing it and they're amplifying falsehoods while they're calling out the other side, saying that they're lying. And the reality is that while the media has always leaned left and the media has always been sympathetic to the Democrats, they've never actively, in my mind, withheld information to the point that they clearly are playing at partisan games. I mean, they've they've always been Democrats. Don't get me wrong here. I'm trying to be very careful in how I say this. They've always been sympathetic to the left. They've always been with the Democrats, but they have never, to the extent they are right now, aided and abetted the Democrats. It, right now, uh, Ben Dominich at, at the uh, Federalist, his daily email that comes up. Let, let me read you uh, this key paragraph that he writes. Even by the measure of a media that has gaslit the American people through the Steele dossier, the P-tape, the Russia hoax, the Secret Server hoax, Christine Blasey Ford, 
E. Jean Carroll, the Ukraine impeachment, and everything in the Trump Middle East policy causing World War III, this, what they're doing right now, shows incredible hubris. The idea that there are no riots, but Donald Trump is fanning the flames of the violence. Because that's the line you hear. Chris Saliza at CNN says there aren't riots. They're just protests. Why isn't the president denouncing the violence? Well, there, you just said there isn't violence. So you want the president to denounce violence when you say there is no violence. Why? It just, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, it, it, it's the, the double standard from the media in this continues to not make sense. The, the double standard from the media in this is indicative of people who are out to lie to you to advance an agenda. They've always shaped narrative more than fact, but it's gotten to the point now where there's no difference between the DNC and the Democratic Party. In fact, I, I got to play you this audio. This is uh, Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday. He is talking to Kate Bedenfield, who is the uh, spokesperson for the um, for the for for the the Biden campaign. Where is this clip? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I gotta I gotta just play you some of this so you can hear his pause. After months of virtual campaigning, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden appears ready to make a change. Joining us now, Biden Deputy Campaign Manager, Kate Bedingfield. Kate? I'm going to skip ahead real quick to get to the relevant point here. We're, we're going to do, do uh, one minute in. One of the reason that we are in the state of chaos that we're in in this country is because Donald Trump has failed to lead on the coronavirus. He failed to take it seriously from the outset. Um, and he's failed to be a uniter. He's failed to lead as we've been grappling with this oh. moment of racial injustice in this country. So I just I wanted to address that from the outset because neither okay. of the, neither of those things were true. Um, but to your question. Um, uh, so, yes, what I can say is you will absolutely hear Joe Biden out this week addressing this moment in the country. We will have details to share on the location uh, shortly. But what I can tell you is that he's going to do what he's been doing across the course of this summer, which is. Uh, calling together people, uniting the country, leading, encouraging people um, uh, uh, to take on this okay. moment with a sense of purpose. He's been doing that. He's been leading. It's exactly the opposite of what we've been seeing from Trump, who's been trying to incite violence this entire summer. Just wait a second. Well, I'll get to violence in a second. No, I'm thinking in real time. The president is inciting violence. You saw Donald Trump go to New Hampshire on Friday and say, you know, protesters my ass. He's had every opportunity to speak as a leader to this nation that is hurting to speak. I, I, I want to stop it there because if you see Chris Wallace. He, he, I, I, I like the guy in that he at this point hates both sides. And I'm kind of I, I may be voting for Trump, but I'm just disgusted by by the whole thing on all sides right now. And, and he, Chris Wallace, this is a bridge too far for him that the president is inciting violence. But this is where they are with the press as well right now. He, even the talking points of the media. Is that, remember the president called the, the reporters the enemies of the people. And that was it for the press. Oh, he's going to get us all killed. That was it with the press. And they went to war with the president. And they've been at war with the president ever since, and, and the press amplifies this. It, it is the talking heads in the media and anchors on CNN and MSNBC 
who wants you to believe that the president of the United States is sparking this, is inciting this, is going to get all of these people killed. And they turn a blind eye to the, the, the bat poop crazy statements on the left. I mean, listen to Tiffany Cross at MSNBC. A recent Pew Research poll found that while Trump still has very low support among voters of color, the Latinx support for Trump is at 35 percent. Seven point Latin X support. Listen to that. It's above the 28 percent he got in 2016. So can the GOP strategy be effective? Jason, I'm going to start with you first. I mean, I watched the Republican convention and seeing the slew of black speakers that they had, it really did look like a modern day minstrel show to me. What did you make of it? Wow. Jason. I thought it was a modern-day minstrel show. You hate them, too. What did you think? Well, Tiffany, I think it was that as well. I, what, what, what did you think, person who hates Donald Trump? They get away with that at, at, at MSNBC. By the way, Latin X, Latin X. that's what this woman said, Latin X at MSNBC. These people are not bright. And yet they're the ones who want to shape the news, and they want to shape the news in a way that that is deeply hostile to the president. You know, there are plenty of things to complain about Donald Trump. There, there are plenty of things the president does that 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 bug me. These are not those things. Now, how is this playing out in the real world? I want to do a deep dive into the polling in the 11 o'clock hour because there are some trend lines that are actually making everybody nervous right now that I want to get to. But I want to play this clip from Steve Kornacki. Steve Kornacki is kind of the, the data guy at MSNBC. You listen, listen to this on Black Lives Matters. Yeah, we we have yet to be seen how what's happening right now is going to affect the polls, but we're getting a bit of a hint that already, as this began to play out in the last week, things were changing on the ground in Wisconsin in terms of public opinion when it came to the protest movement, when it came to Black Lives Matter. Let me show you what I mean. This was back in June. This was taken right after the George Floyd video, just as protests started to spring up across the country. The question here to Wisconsin voters, the Marquette Law Poll was, do you approve or disapprove of the Black Lives Matter movement, the protests that you're seeing? You see here, it was overwhelming support, almost you know, getting close to two to one there. This cut across party lines, this cut across racial lines, very strong support in June. Now, two months later, early August, they ask the question again, and you see in Wisconsin, there was a big shift here, a, a downward shift in terms of support here. The approve, disapprove number for uh, Black Lives Matter dead even in Wisconsin. And again, these numbers are from about a week before Kenosha. So I'll step aside, make sure you see them here. These numbers from about a week before Kenosha. So it sets up the possibility here. Look, there had already been pretty significant movement. What will Kenosha do? Will it mean that that approved number falls further? Will it recharge support for Black Lives Matter and stuff? That's the question. We want to get some more numbers on it. But we already started to see a trend here. The other thing we saw in Wisconsin polling between June and August, Joe Biden led in both polls, but the lead was narrower in August. Joe Biden led by eight in the June poll over Donald Trump, only by four cut in half uh, in the August poll. <gasps> Doom and gloom. The president's making inroads. The Democrats are overplaying their heads. That's why you're seeing the great collective freakout in the media right now over what's happening. And that's why they're rushing to blame the president of the United States for everything. Because they're desperate for Joe Biden to win. And it looks like he's starting to 
snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Hello there. The president is fanning the flames of violence, but these aren't actually violent protests. That is the media line of the day. <laughs> oh my goodness, y'all! We gotta we gotta move on from this. I want to go back to this Biden clip because there's there's a point that needs to be made here. Let me play this one more time. COVID has taken this year, just since the outbreak, has taken more than 100 years. Look, here's the lives. It's just, it's, I mean, you think about it. More lives this year than any other year for the past 100 years. Can, can you all say a prayer for the sign language interpreter? Because I, I saw the video of the poor sign language interpreter, and, and for a minute there, it looked like he was just throwing up his hands. Like, I don't know either, guys. I just say, say a prayer. <laughs> say a prayer for the sign language interpreter. That poor guy, he, he's got his work cut out for him with the word salad that is Joe Biden's mind. I, I mean, it just... just... <laughs> Oh, the poor guy. He's just Joe Biden. He's like, a hundred years, COVID. What? Yes. Um, 100 years this virus is uh, uh, okay. <laughs> oh, I just, I, I, I feel so, I feel so bad for the sign language guy. Uh, you know, the sign language guys are impressive. Um, yeah, like, like with uh, Governor Kemp. The, the sign language guy who works with Governor Kemp is just deeply impressive for his press conferences. Very dramatic presentation, uh, making it clear for those who need it. I, when I was a kid, I had to learn parts beyond the alphabet. You know, when you're a kid and you're in school and you read about Helen Keller and you got to learn sign language like the alphabet and stuff. So essentially you learn how to cheat on multiple choice tests in, in school with your friends. Uh, and, and then that burns out. And I, I actually tried for a while to learn some of it beyond that and just never, never stuck with it. It's in, it's uh, deeply impressive to me the people who commit to doing it, and I, I've I've got a, a couple of friends who they they they've got a, a deaf child and they've learned sign language and and communicate with their child who lost their hearing, and it's just it's remarkable. But man, oh man, oh man, oh man, I I just I I oh I don't like the um I I I don't I I just I I feel bad for the people who have to do this. And, and I don't like the, the outrage by some, uh, I don't know if you've seen these stories of late that, uh, you've got sign language interpreters. I, I read a story. Where was it? Where was it recently? Um, it was a, the, the sign language interpreters too white, too white as, as if it mattered. Where was it? I want to say it's like teen Vogue or something. I don't think it was there. But there was some write-up that that too many of the sign language interpreters out there do not reflect people of color, as if that matters when they're just telling people what someone else says. It just the whole thing to me just is is striking and and nuts. Uh, anyway, when we come back, let's shift gears a little bit, please. Oh, I forgot to talk about the Benadryl Challenge. I should educate you on the Benadryl Challenge. Kids are dying. It's the latest, brought to you by Tide Pod Generation overdosing on Benadryl and dying, but also the mail-in ballot freakout in America. There is some growing data that has Democrats super distressed about what may happen in the election now that they've decided they want everyone to mail in their ballots. Uh, The chicken's coming home to roost. Hello, America. How are y'all? It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number. You want to call in the program, you're allowed. 
877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the phone number. I, I was I, I do want to do a deep dive in polling, but uh, a friend of mine actually just sent me this link, and, and this is worth commenting on from Axios. China's economic carrots and sticks are putting pressure on Hollywood to produce films that might soar in the country's box office and avoid those that may displease Beijing. By censoring American blockbusters, Beijing believes it can prevent American and global audiences from imagining the Chinese Communist Party as a major threat and from viewing the targets of China's repression as victims worthy of sympathy. Disney is set to release Mulan this weekend to more than 60 million subscribers on Disney+. Plus. Analysts expect the film about a young Chinese, Chinese, a young Chinese, young female Chinese warrior during the Han Dynasty will bring in a billion dollars in global box office sales in part from China. Though that estimate was before the pandemic, China's box office is projected to soon surpass the U.S. as the largest film market in the world. Access to the market can make or break the success of a major Hollywood film, says James Tanger, author of the recent PEN America report about how the Chinese government censors the U.S. film industry and how the industry responds to self-censoring. But the Chinese government tightly controls access to the market, including films that include content it dislikes and blacklisting individual actors or film studios that have previously participated in activities the Chinese Communist Party doesn't like. The result is an epic of self-censorship in Hollywood, says Anne Kokos, assistant professor of media studies at the University of Virginia and an author of the book Hollywood Made in China. They're removing content that they worry could upset the Chinese government even before actually proposing it to the Chinese government. And there is pressure to include content that is flattering to Beijing, says the professor. Hollywood has played an enduring role in the creation of foreign enemies in the American imagination from Soviet Russia to Middle Eastern terrorists to the post 9-11 era. A succession of James Bond movies, Rocky IV, Air Force One, are just a few of the major American films, including Russian villains. Popular 9-11 movies like American Sniper, Zero Dark Thirty, present the U.S. killing Middle Easterners and the CIA's torture program as justified. On the silver screen, Russians are still America's favorite bad guys 30 years after the Cold War. Hollywood has so effectively equated Russians with villainy that even the hint of Slavic accent is a dead giveaway the character's evil. But the last major Hollywood studio, last time a major Hollywood studio made a movie that presented a vulnerable group as the victim of Chinese government aggression was 1997 with Seven Years in Tibet, starring Brad Pitt. The Chinese government responded by slapping a five-year ban on Columbia TriStar, the production company that made the film, a response that cast a chill over the Hollywood industry. Film studios now go out of their way to ensure their movies avoid topics or depictions of China that might run afoul of Chinese censorships or Chinese censors. China's clunky censorship has caused American and global audiences to lose out on a deeper understanding of China's society, says Becky Davis, the Chinese bureau chief for Variety. Davis points out that independent American film The Farewell, a story about the looming death of a Chinese-American family's matriarch, is an example of a movie that presents life in China and Chinese families abroad in a complex and sympathetic way. Think of all the other kinds of farewells we could have and all the other types of stories we could have that the information could flow freely. Now, there's a point in this. China right now is censoring the American box office. China right now has such a huge box office that American movie studios are, it pains them to offend China. Take, for example, the second Top Gun. Remember, there, there was a, a patch 
that Maverick wore about uh, that was pro Taiwan. It is gone in the second Top Gun. They they've removed it from his jacket, and a lot of people notice that. Uh, th- there are time and again movies where the bad guys that were going to be Chinese are stripped out and replaced with someone else because Hollywood doesn't want to make China mad. Let me read you a key line again. First of all, remember that China is supposedly on pace to outmatch the American box office. going to be a bigger box office in China. More money can be made for Hollywood film studios in China than the United States. And then there's this. The last time a major Hollywood studio made a movie that presented a vulnerable group as the victim of Chinese government aggression was in 1997 with Seven Years in Tibet starring Brad Pitt. The Chinese government responded by slapping a five-year ban on Columbia TriStar, the production company that made the film, a response that cast a chill over the movie industry in Hollywood. And since then, Hollywood has not run any movies that depict China critically or accurately for that matter. I raise that because there's an important point here. Disney owns ABC, and ABC produces ESPN and ABC News. CBS Viacom owns Paramount, which produces movies, and there's also a news division at CBS. NBC News and MSNBC are owned by Comcast that also owns Universal Pictures. Disney now, of course, also owns Fox, but not Fox News. Ironically, Fox News is now the only news network that is not entangled with China. Every may, oh, and let's not forget CNN. CNN is owned by who? Warner, which owns what? Warner Brothers. Every major news outlet in the United States, except for Fox News, every television news network, is now owned by a company that owns film industries. How much longer do you think it'll be before China decides that it's going to come after Warner because CNN mentioned uh, the, the concentration camps that they're putting the Uyghur population in? How much longer do you think it's going to be? You know, ESPN worked very hard to make sure during the the uh, time that the, the NBA wasn't talking about Hong Kong and people were showing up at at NBA um, games and they were holding up stand with Hong Kong signs. ESPN went out of their way to make sure you didn't see those on TV. When someone would hold them up, the camera would immediately yank away. How long will it be before ABC News doesn't want to report on anything bad with China? so that Disney's box office is not impacted. How long will it be before Comcast starts dissuading news editors at NBC from saying anything bad about China? And frankly, right now, you also have a situation where so much of the country is hostile to President Trump and and people's politics are shaping things like, like their views of the presidency. And you've got a situation where you can see people taking favorable stances towards China in response to their unfavorable views of Donald Trump being president. So how long before some of the news networks start running Chinese propaganda? I mean, we've already seen the Washington Post and others running China daily 
paid advertising segments of pro-China propaganda. They're taking money from communist China. You're seeing Confucius Institutes in colleges around the country. And in fact, as reports have come out during the Trump era that aren't related to Donald Trump, but just so happen to come out from the government during the Trump era, you're seeing some colleges double down in support of their Confucius Institutes, which we know from bipartisan review in the Senate Intelligence Committee are actually propaganda operations of the Chinese communist regime. How long before you're not allowed to talk about that stuff? How long before media companies that own news networks and film studios can't be critical of China on the news? You know it's coming. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. China banned Columbia Tribe Star for five years from the Chinese market because of seven years in Tibet. All China has to do is ban one Disney film when ABC News reports critically on China, and you will see ABC News never mention China again. You want CNN to not care about concentration camps in China? You want CNN to not care about slave labor in China? You want CNN to not care about uh, brutal, brutal Chinese crackdowns in Hong Kong and the like? You start banning Warner Brothers movies, DC films, from the Chinese box office, you will see CNN go silent. Now, I know people who work at these networks and they say, that's not true, we'll still speak out. They can say that now because it's not happening. What's going to be their safe word when it does? Several years ago, my wife and I uh, were, were somewhere and we were talking to a guy who provides uh, private security. And the guy told us, he said, you know, have you ever thought you need a safe word that if someone comes to your house, if you're in a bad situation and, and you need to send a signal to people that you're, that something is bad, something is wrong, something has changed, what's your safe word? So that, for example, and this was the example he gave, uh, someone comes to your house, uh, breaks into your house and is holding you at gunpoint and your wife calls you, you're home being held at gunpoint and your wife calls and says, I'm on the way home. And uh, just, just do you need anything? And you say, you need to go by the grocery store and get oregano. Oregano being the safe word. Your wife knows immediately that there's something wrong at home. And what is the safe word going to be for members of the media? When China starts bullying the news networks, saying we're going to block Disney's box office if ABC News reports critically on us. What is going to be the safe word uh, for CNN or for MSNBC or NBC when China starts saying, I'm sorry, you can't get your Universal Films or your Warner Brothers movies here because CNN or MSNBC or, or CBS or any of them said something bad about China. It really is deeply ironic that at this point with the divestment of Fox Studios from Fox, Fox News is the last major American news outlet in this country that can actually be critical of China because it has nothing to lose because it's not going to be banned in China at this point. Its movies aren't going to be banned. It's not dependent on the Chinese box office. What's, what is the media going to do to signal this? People need to start figuring this stuff out. It needs to happen now because this is coming. They've started with movies with negative depictions of China. The Chinese government is not going to stop there because they want the world to believe that China is what it is not, a thriving system that is free and fair. It's not. It is a brutal regime that rounds up religious dissidents and minorities and puts them in concentration camps and re-education camps and forcibly aborts children. 
It is a brutal regime. In fact, it is a regime where there's a report out about growing inequality in China, and uh, the Chinese have have denounced the media outlets that are covering the growing inequality in the Chinese communist system. It's going to come. Well, are, are we as a society in the United States, are we prepared to take a stand? Is our media prepared to take a stand? See, here's here's my concern. I do believe that there are corporations that value profit over truth and they will keep quiet and they will tone down their coverage of China, if not abandon coverage of China altogether, if they can make a profit. And as we come out of the pandemic, it's the perfect time for China to crack down. You know, Apple put a a thing up on its website years ago uh, when the NSA was was going to companies and demanding access to records to try to get access to phones and private uh, confidential stuff. Apple put up a notice on their website saying that uh, this is their disclaimer that the government has never asked them for the stuff. And people could go to it. And as long as that was there, they knew Apple had never been probed by the federal government for the stuff. I believe that information went away a while back which is kind of a red flag that, you know what, looks like the government came snooping on somebody and, and Apple had to comply. I think that happened thus far. What is the code word that these reporters who say, no, no, my news network's going to stand up to sign. I report critically on China. I, I'm going to defy them and tell the truth. What will be their safe word when the Chinese come for their news network? Because it is going to happen. You mark my words. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Going to Warner Robins, to Dana. Welcome to the program. Dana, how are you? Good morning, Eric. How are you doing? Good. What's going on? I wanted to take you back to Friday night. Um, Jake Tapper was making his comments after the president's uh, speech, and he was attacking the president and the other speakers in the RNC as creating a stable of propaganda, asking people to not believe what they already think. But I think the problem is, uh, and this is kind of where I wanted you to comment since you've talked about Tapper being a good buddy of yours, is that what he's really doing is he's creating his own propaganda because he's saying people are not believing what we in the mainstream media and CNN and whoever is saying about the president. Because all yeah. of the people in the in the RNC were saying, this is what you keep hearing over and over who the president is, but I'm telling you who he is, what I've seen. And uh, Tapper is saying, your people are not believing our propaganda, and that's just not a good thing. You know, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I, I saw that uh, on Thursday night, the commentary on CNN beyond Jake and, and some of the others there. And, you know, one of the other things that, that CNN did that I thought was notable is during the Democratic convention, you had three Democrats versus Scott Jennings, the one Republican and former Mitch McConnell uh, staffer uh, on the, the, the night of the convention. Uh, discussing the the Democratic convention. It was three Democrats to one Republican. At the Republican convention, it was two Democrats versus two Republicans, one of whom inevitably was someone who hated Donald Trump. Uh, a, a clear shift there. As to Tapper's comments, I got his frustration throughout the, the Republican convention, and I know that there is this view among a lot of reporters, including Jake right now, that, that the Republicans are just lying about everything. And I actually think it's, it's a worldview issue, and I think that you've got to understand 
that many of the people in the media, uh, regardless of which network you walk, including some at Fox, really have a bias in favor of government working. And it's not, it translates as a liberal bias. In fact, I, I got to tell you, it was actually a friend of mine at CNN who pointed this out to me years ago, that what a lot of conservatives perceive as a widespread liberal bias translates as a liberal bias. But what it really is, is that government is supposed to work and, and work to help people in certain ways. And inevitably, that creates a bias against limited government and a bias against conservatives. And I thought that was very insightful because you see this uh, where, for example, uh, Tapper's quibbling with the Trump administration tends to be that uh, his belief that what they're doing isn't working. And the Trump administration says, yes, it is working. And Tapper says, no, it isn't working. Well, it must be propaganda, therefore, for the Republicans to say it is working when it is perceived by members of the press to not be working. The same thing, though, holds true. Uh, when you get into the Democratic Party, where when the Democratic Party tells you that the government can be grand and glorious, it's perceived as a fact by members of the media who are biased in favor of government being productive. Now, listen, uh, Jake and I are friends. I, I I think the world's a guy. I think he's the best reporter out there right now, frankly, uh, he and Brett Baer. And I remember when the left was beside themselves in rage with Jake Tapper daring to hold uh, the Democrats accountable. When Barack Obama was president, Jake Tapper was about the only guy who would ask them tough questions. Now he's asking Republicans tough questions, and Republicans are out to smear him. He and I do not always agree. Uh, that That is the, one of the benefits of friendship is you can be friends with someone and disagree. I do think that Jake uh, and most members of the media are at this point just flat out burned out on the Trump administration. Uh, they feel embattled, and I do have a measure of sympathy in this regard. I know more than one reporter who has been heckled and harassed uh, with their family beyond the Chris Cuomo garbage uh, who have been heckled and harassed. I know reporters who have been threatened, have their lives threatened. Remember the guy in Florida who had the van that was covered in Trump stickers and, and he was mailing pipe bombs to people. Uh, and it, it turns out there are a number of reporters who are friends of mine who he had detailed dossiers on them and their families and, and meant them harm. And so I, I understand reporters wanting to go back to something normal. And, and I think we should be sympathetic to that, even as we disagree with how they view the world and what's going on. Uh, I, I, but, you know, honestly, and by the way, I'm, I'm happy to take your y'all's calls as well. 877-973-7425. I, I, I want to say this, and I mean this lovingly to a lot of people. Honestly, at this point, I think this is why Donald Trump needs to win a second term. The people who are convinced the world is going to hell in a handbasket and America is is flipping to an authoritarian fascist regime at the hands of Donald Trump need to see they're wrong. And if Donald Trump loses, they're going to conclude they were right all along and the American public stopped Donald Trump from becoming the fascist authoritarian that they always knew he was. They need to see a second term of Donald Trump just so they realize it's not as bad as they think. The world has not come to an end. Uh, for their own mental health and their view of the American people, they need to see that they were wrong. And if he loses, they will never see that they're wrong. Now, I am very confident I am right. Donald Trump will serve four more years. It'll be tumultuous. It'll be great for ratings, but it'll be really tumultuous. We'll all be miserable. We'll all be fighting with each other, but his term will come to an end and we will have someone new and the public will go with a Democrat because they rarely ever stay with the same party for three terms. 
but the Democrats need to see this. They they need to see that they're wrong, and the only way for them to see that they're wrong is for Donald Trump to get reelected and show them that they're wrong about all their pre-existing presumptions. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson. The phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I want to do a bit of a deep dive into the polling right now. Um, let me give you the standard caveats uh, that, that all of you believe the polling is wrong, and there are a lot of terrible pollsters out there. Uh, but remember, the, a lot of you said in 2018 the poll was wrong and the Republicans would actually keep the House, and, and they didn't. turned out the polling was mostly right. Again, there are bad pollsters out there who get it really wrong. But the polling averages, you can take some trust in the polling averages. And, and the reason you can take some level of trust in the polling averages is because by taking the average of so many pollsters out there, they kind of weed out the high end and the low end, the, the good and the bad, and, and they balance it out. And so let me give you the example of this. You're looking at 2016, and you're thinking, well, the polls completely missed 2016. Actually, Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote. Hillary Clinton won with 2.1% of the popular vote. In the polling average, the final polling average was 3.2%. So about a a point off. Uh, It wasn't bad, Uh, but it didn't take into account the swing state issues. And the pollsters this year are more mindful of that to a degree. And I want to walk you through some of that so you get a sense of where we are uh, and, and you get a sense of, of the general election and, and where we stand in that. Right now, in the polling average, Biden is at 6.2%, 6.2%. Now, every single person I have spoken to, including with the Trump campaign, believes something specific. That is that Joe Biden is going to win the popular vote. He will win the popular vote. The question is, is his win enough to shape the Electoral College? Or does the president outperform in swing states? Here is the rule of thumb from talking to multiple pollsters, Democrat, Republican, and Independent. Uh, There used to be a prevailing consensus that if you were within three to four points, the president could win. The consensus at this point is five points. If if the polls, if if the national polling is within five points, or a state poll is within five points, the president could potentially carry it if it's a swing state. The Joe Biden right now nationally is at six point two percent. The preponderance of the pollsters that I've talked to is that to them, their prediction would be that it will be close, but that Biden will probably win the Electoral College because he's outside the five percentage points. That's them. I have to tell you, though, when you delve down to the the state map, uh, there are uh, some serious concerns with the way things are shaping, and here's why. Let's look at the polling in the battlegrounds. Now, what are the battlegrounds right now? The battlegrounds are Wisconsin, North Carolina, Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona. And we have polling on those. And the polling spread is Biden at 2.7%, which means this is actually Donald Trump's race. Because every pollster I've talked to at this point does believe two things. One, 
Trump supporters are less likely to answer the phone if they recognize the number. Therefore, polling is being skewed towards those who don't support the president. And two, Donald Trump's supporters are so antagonistic towards pollsters, they're willing to lie to the pollsters. Every pollster I've talked to across the board presumes now that about 2%, Donald Trump has a 2 to 3% point bump in the polls. So if Biden nationally is at six points, he's probably okay. But when you look down to the swing states that actually matter, Biden in the polling average is only 2.7%. And the polling is not uh, detailed right now. So, for example, we've got the president ahead in North Carolina by 0.3%, Biden ahead by 3.5% in Wisconsin and Florida, ahead by 47 in Pennsylvania, 26 in Michigan, and 22 in Arizona. All of that can go towards the president. Now, I have tried to understand a phenomenon here because I, I I wasn't prepared to acknowledge its existence now. And I finally have to say, having talked to plenty of experts, I do now have to say this is a real phenomenon. There are still people in this country, even though Donald Trump won in 2016 and they're on the Trump team, they're not comfortable telling people that they support the president. I had a presumption that there were some, but the question was, are there people, particularly in southern states that are pro-Trump states, are there people unwilling to acknowledge that they're Donald or unwilling to acknowledge that they're no longer Trump supporters? Every pollster I've talked to, left, right, center, independent, don't know their party, all say yes. There are people in southern states, particularly bright red states like Alabama, Mississippi, and the like who have concluded that they can no longer support the president. They supported him in 2016, and they're not going to support him now. But they are more convinced and and more focused on the fact that uh, Donald Trump has a lot of supporters, more than that, who still won't talk to pollsters. They don't want to talk to pollsters. They don't want to admit that they're they're with poll. They don't want to admit that they support the president. They, They want nothing to do with it. And as a result, the pollsters are all very committed to the fact that about 2 to 3% of people out there are probably Trump voters and they're not acknowledged in the polls. So when you see a poll, add 2% to Donald Trump's side and see where you wind up. And when you do that in the swing states, Donald Trump has an electoral college advantage, but it's a bare advantage. Now, here's the thing you need to understand as well in the polling. Joe Biden still leads in most of the swing states, but Donald Trump got the bounce from Joe Biden's poll and from from Joe Biden's convention and from Donald Trump's convention. There is a real bounce for the president of the United States, and that matters tremendously uh, for the president and for, um, for, for everybody out there. You need to be mindful of the fact that uh, that he is that he is uh, it looks like he's in the lead at this point. Uh, the president of the United States uh, genuinely looks like he's got an advantage, and uh, that the president of the United States could win re-election, and more particularly that the president of the United States in the swing states of Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Florida is beginning to benefit by seeing these left-wing supporters melt down and burn cities. 
This is why the media has so aggressively pushed for Biden to come out and say something. And it's why Biden's speech was fine, but it wasn't fantastic. But the media made it out to be fantastic because the media at this point is on the Democratic side. And increasingly, Americans are mindful of that fact as well. Increasingly, America is mindful of the fact that the media does have a dog in this fight. And they're starting to tune out a lot of the media. And they're relying on social media. And that gets to the tie-in on the polling that you need to pay attention to. If you pay attention to Facebook in particular, conservatives have started dominating the platform. And conservatives are more likely to to um, trade news and information on Facebook than progressives are. In fact, progressives have become very bitter about Facebook since Donald Trump won. They blame Facebook, among other things. They blame the Russians. They blame Facebook. They blame, blame everything, blame Fox News for helping Donald Trump get elected. And uh, one of the, the left-wing tech reporters of the New York Times has tracked Facebook for years on what's trending. And inevitably, it's conservatives trending on Facebook. Inevitably, it is conservative data trending on Facebook. Inevitably, it is conservative news sites trending on Facebook. Inevitably, it is conservative opinion trending on Facebook. And Facebook has hundreds of millions of people who are actively engaged on the platform. And all of this goes to shape the polling. So where does the polling stand right now? Well, uh, in in the battlegrounds, as I mentioned, Joe Biden has a 2.7% advantage in the battlegrounds. If the president actually can win these places, the president wins the election despite losing the popular vote. It is important again to remember that no one on the Trump team takes seriously the idea that the president will win the popular vote. They've given lip service to it, but they don't really believe it. Now, here's the problem for the for um, for Biden and the national average. He's at six point two percent. I'm going to throw out Rasmussen and Emerson because Rasmussen and Emerson are some of the worst pollsters in the country. Emerson in particular is probably the worst pollster in the country right now. And it only has Biden up two, and Rasmussen has him up one. Pay attention to CNN. CNN has Biden up by only four. CNN, nationwide, CNN has only Biden up four, and that's with registered voters. And registered voters tend to lean Democrat. If Biden is up four with CNN's poll of registered voters, that's not good for Joe Biden. Because with likely voters, it would be two. And if you then give President Trump an additional two percentage points of, of latent Trump voters who don't want to talk to pollsters, you've got a tied race. And that is why you're starting to hear the alarm bell sound among Democrats out there that this race may be very close and we may very likely be in a situation where mail-in balloting causes people to undermine the election. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's say you do have a massive mail-in balloting campaign. I don't know if you've heard, but a federal judge has ruled that in Georgia, they're going to have to keep counting ballots as long as they're postmarked on Election Day. For three days, they're going to have to keep counting ballots. The Georgia rule has always been the ballot must be in on Election Day to be counted. A federal judge has overruled Georgia and said, no, no, it's got to be in within three days of the election. As long as it's postmarked by Election Day, you got to count it within three days. So let's say the president has a 50% margin in Georgia election day and then 49 percent the next he's at 49 the next day 48 and a half the next day 48 the next day he still wins georgia but it's closer than people thought 
What about Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, some of these states, North Carolina, where you've got the president on election day wins, but then the margin reduces each day. These are things that are starting to make people in Washington nervous. And people in Washington are praying for a blowout. But there's a problem. The president has a really good ground game. And the vice president has only gotten started. The vice president and the Democrats are making a serious calculation that they will be able to turn people out on rage against Donald Trump. That they don't need a serious ground game because one, people are going to vote by mail. And two, people hate the president so much and they're ready to get rid of him that they're going to vote anyway. Meanwhile, the president's team is out in rural and exurban areas, knocking on doors, reaching out to voters, trying to persuade them to come out and vote. If it's a very close race, you really will have chaos in the country. And I've got to say, this is why I think mail-in balloting and the way that we're trying to do it in this country this year is a bad idea. The country really does need a stable election in November. Uh, I, I was reading John Ellis. He's got a he's got a um, a newsletter he sends out in the mornings. I uh, used to work for the Bush administration. He said, you know, democracy doesn't just depend on having a winner and loser. It also depends on the consent of the loser. And if the race is super, super dragged out because of mail-in balloting and it's super close and one side wins on election day and ultimately loses, you're going to have a really hard time for that person to say, okay, I did lose. You're already seeing both sides stacking the deck so that they don't have to concede defeat. Remember, Stacey Abrams never actually conceded defeat in Georgia in 2018. Now, of course, the media would have you believe this is a phenomenon unique to Donald Trump, but it's not. Both sides do this at this point. It's not healthy for democracy. You would love to have someone stand up and say, you know what? He beat me fair and square, whoever he is. That's not going to happen. So the question is, how close is it? And then if Vice President Biden does win the popular vote by 4 million votes, but he loses the Electoral College, what exactly will the Democrats do? It's not like they're going to sit it out. But this goes full circle to the opening of my show today. The Democrats have been screaming about the 2016 election for four years. If the president wins, they're going to have a complete meltdown. But I really increasingly in my mind think he does need to win just so that Democrats have to realize how wrong they've had it. They've really internalized the belief that he is a a would-be dictator who wants to impose an authoritarian regime in the United States and that they're pushing back as loud resistance to, to fight the man. I really do think they need to live through four more years of, of Donald Trump just so they can see in, in 2024 that the president really is term limited. He really is going to go away. The Republicans are going to move on. The Democrats will probably win because the American public never keeps the same party in the White House for more than two terms, except Ronald Reagan. I I, I really do think that that's the direction we need to head just for the long-term stability of the country. The left needs to own the defeat and realize that they've been wrong. Now, if you're on the left, of course, you're going to hate that. But you also have internalized that this man is some sort of authoritarian despot, and he's not really. He's not. It, arguably, he he's he doesn't have it together enough to be, and he's not surrounded with people enough to, who want him to be. But you've internalized it, and that's causing what we're seeing in so many of these cities around the country. And you need to have a second term so you realize, hey, you know what? He's going to go away eventually. Of course, the funny thing is going to be, what if Trump loses and then he runs again in four years? What does the Republican Party do?
Hello there. I can see that the mattress truck has pulled up at my house to deliver me a mattress here uh, right as I'm trying to, to wrap up the show. Perfect timing. Uh, I want to play a video for you. Uh, hang on a second. Now I've lost it. I got to find it again. Uh, I, I haven't seen the video. Uh, I, I did scroll through it very quickly to make sure that they had uh, all sorts of stuff they were bleeping because this gives you a sense of the um, uh, uh, of exactly where the rhetoric is right now um, with the Democrats when it comes to the president, particularly in the media, uh, the, the the level of, of violent language they themselves have used to to push the president uh, and the like and and go after the president and condemn the president. It's actually pretty intense, the language that they've used. And they have time and time again now, uh, criticize the president for this violent rhetoric. But I, I can't get the video to play. It's, it's frozen. But uh, you'll recall that, they, oh, here we go. Hang on one second. Let me see if I can do this without my dog barking. I, I, I just don't even know why there aren't uprisings all over the country. Maybe there will be. People need to start taking to the streets. This is a dictator. You know, there needs to be unrest in the streets for as long as there's unrest in our lives. Enemies of the state. Show me where it says that protests are supposed to be polite and peaceful. Do something about your dad's immigration practices, you feckless. When they go low, we kick. How do you resist the temptation to run up and wring her neck? Biggest terror threat in this country is white men, most of them radicalized right up to the right. I thought he should have punched him in the face. I said, even if you lost, he insulted your wife. Yes. He came down the escalator and called Mexicans rapists and murders. He said, well, what do you think I should have done? I said, I think you should have punched him in the face and then gotten out of the race. You would have been a hero. I'd like to punch him in the face. I said if we were in high school, I'd take him behind the gym and beat the hell out of him. Punch some people in the face! When was the last time an actor assassinated a president? They're still going to have to go out and put a bullet in Donald Trump, and that's a fact. Look as his character is stabbed to death. Where is John Wilkes Booth when you need him? I have thought an awful lot about blowing up the White House. A Missouri state senator is under investigation by the Secret Service after saying she hopes President Trump is assassinated. I will go and take Trump out tonight. And if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd. And you push back on them. And you tell them they're not welcome anymore, anywhere. And sadly, the domestic enemies to our voting system and wow. our honoring our Constitution uh, are right at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. They're not going to stop before Election Day in November, and they're not going to stop after Election Day. And that should be, everyone should take note of that on both levels, that this isn't, they're not going to let up, and they should not. If you think we're rallying now, you ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, that is left-wing rhetoric from Democrats and talking heads uh, inciting violence. And yet they say it's Donald Trump. It's projection is what it is. It is, you need to be mindful that the media is in right now. And I know most of you know this with the Democrats, but they're so committed right now to the narrative. They're not actually willing to tell you the truth. And are there things the president has said and done that he shouldn't? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I would. 
But I'm intellectually honest enough to admit that. And in the media, it's all Donald Trump's fault all the time. The left has never done anything. They're blameless, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not really what's happening in the country right now. Uh, text the word data to 33777. Get what I wrote where I document all the cases of left-wing extremism during the Obama years and see for yourself. Text data to 33777. Get that now today. Read it. Share it with your friends. After my heart attack, cash from active care meant I had choices. When I had cancer, cash from active care meant I didn't need to stress so much about money. What is active care? Active care is a supplemental health insurance policy that offers protection for covered cancer, heart attack, or stroke, and a choice of cash benefit options from $10,000 to $60,000. If you're diagnosed with cancer, a heart attack, or stroke, you could end up paying thousands of dollars or more in out-of-pocket medical bills. Active care gives you protection at an affordable price. So get active care for cash, choice, and control. Active Care is brought to you by Colonial Penn Life Insurance Company and is underwritten by Washington National Insurance Company. Visit colonialpen.com for more information. This is a limited benefit policy. This policy has limitations and exclusions. For costs and complete details of coverage, visit colonialpen.com. New to Medicare? Start now. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about some of the top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including plans for $0 a month in plan premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and expansive provider networks. If you're thinking about a Medicare Advantage plan, MyHealthPolicy.com is a great place to go to find a plan that meets your needs. Learn more about your options. Even talk with a licensed insurance agent. MyHealthPolicy.com new to medicare go to myhealthpolicy.com with myhealthpolicy.com you can compare plans from some of the nation's top insurers start now to find a plan and apply online myhealthpolicy.com makes it easy to find a medicare advantage plan in your area including plans for zero dollars a month in plan premiums low out-of-pocket costs and expansive provider networks my decision my medicare myhealthpolicy.com 